Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Happy Easter, Ashley. Happy Easter. Alleluia. Alleluia. Our long Lent is over. Long Lent (laughs) is, well, almost over. I do want to wish, in particular, Happy Easter to my uh, old roommate, uh, JP, who listeners will recall (laughs) that last year on this show, for the Easter episode, I broke out in song to Jesus Christ is risen today. And um, I sang it so loud. And this was still in the early days of working from home. Um, the JP was on a work call and it he had to tell his coworkers over Zoom that there was a, a crazy person outside of his apartment singing uh, Jesus Christ is risen today. So happy birthday to JP and his coworkers yeah. in particular this year. Well, you're... You- you're in your own place now, so you could sing again. I could, not but I'm not. Anyone, right? I'm not going to today. Um, <laughs> okay. But it, you I'm know, sure that actually, will thank you for that. Yeah, I think my wife might be on a work call. I will say that it was a little. That's a little bit depressing because it means we we haven't been in the studio together for a show for oh, more than a year, which is pretty crazy. But um, that is sad. I think you, you've got your vaccine, which is really exciting. I've I got, got my vaccine. It's great. I'm coming around the corner. Yeah, mine is scheduled um, for later this week, so um, you know. That is everyone. If you're eligible, go get the vaccine. But that's the end of this public service announcement. Mm. What do we got this week, Ashley? <laughs> this week, we have a great conversation with Stina Kielsmeyer Cook. She is the author of Blessed Are the Nuns, Mixed Faith, Marriage, and My Search for Spiritual Community. Yeah, Stina has a really beautiful memoir out about mixed faith marriage. And um, it's really the story of her and her husband. Um, they both grew up very very churched, as Stina would say. And then uh, a few years into their marriage, um, her husband, Josh, um, actually kind of goes through a, a, she calls it a deconversion process from Christianity to agnosticism. And so that presents a lot of challenges for the two of them and for what their family is going to look like. And I don't think that if the if the statistics are to believe, which I think they are, um, it's not a a unique problem. And, you know, this is coming up more and more. People are having these types of mixed faith relationships. And so, you know, how, do, how are they going to raise their kids? What does their new life look like? How do they think about um, them? You know, how does Stina think about practicing your own faith without her husband? We get into all of that and more. So definitely stick around for that. Yes. And Stina also gave us a drink recommendation because Lent is over. We can go back to having our cocktails every week. Um, and she gave us a great recipe for a ginger shrub cocktail. Yes, which is, um, I, I'm excited to try. I, I'm a little nervous. I'll try anything at least once, but gi- <laughs> this much ginger has me kind of hesitant. Oh, I love ginger. Okay. I'm the one who like will eat those things off the sushi <laughs> just in chunks. I would, I would eat that too, but I don't know that I'd put it in my, my cocktail. So <laughs> I guess we'll see how this goes. All right. 
Cheers. Cheers. Oh, I love it. What do you think? I, I'm going to say pretty spicy. Like the ginger is definitely there. Um, but uh, but I would I would drink a second. I would order this again if I were at the bar. Okay. So stick around for our conversation with Stina. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Zach, have you ever um, Googled like Jesuit conspiracy theories? You know, I, I got to be honest. I Conspiracy theories are, I love them. I love to engage in them. I love to, you know, that's a... a Back when we had dinner parties, that was the th- that's a thing I usually like to toss around just to stir the pot a little bit. So yes, mm-hmm. I have definitely Googled Jesuit conspiracy theories. And there are a lot of them. And one of the, you know, the overarching one is that the Jesuits are either a part of or they are the Illuminati, this secretive group that is out for world control that includes such luminaries as Jay-Z and Beyonce and apparently our colleagues. Now, I just can promise you, you all you have to do is attend one of our own work meetings and you, you'd be pretty convinced that they are not members of a secret world domination group, right? <laughs> um, and I think any Jesuit would also tell you that. Just go to one of their community meetings and that will put that thought right out of your mind. Um, but nonetheless, you know, if I put my conspiracy hat on, I, I do like going down this rabbit hole. And if you're like me in any way whatsoever, maybe you have some some guilty pleasure, um, like maybe History Channel, Netflix binges. Um, this course from The Great Courses Plus is for you. Yes, it is the real history of secret societies. And it goes through not just the Illuminati, but the Knights of the Templar, the Freemasons, and goes all the way up to today and the New Age movements. This is a, re- if you want to feel smart while indulging some, uh, Guilty pleasure of yours. This is the perfect thing because this is taught by, uh, which is typical of the Great Courses Plus, um, a world class teacher, uh, Richard B. Spence, who's a professor of history at the University of Idaho. He, you know, he's giving you the real history. This isn't this isn't rumor. This isn't conjecture. Um, you know, secret societies they do exist. You know, depend, but how secret they are, the extent of what influence they really have on the world. You know, that's where it gets tricky. And Professor Spence is the perfect person to guide us through that. Yes. So if you want to check out this course or any of the thousands of amazing courses that are offered by The Great Courses Plus, you can visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical and sign up for an entire month of unlimited access. That's a great deal. And you can get it at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? One of the most influential, if controversial, Catholic theologians of the last hundred years died this past week. Hans Kung, who died on April 6th at the age of 93, uh, was born in Switzerland and lived and taught in Germany for most of his life, um, gained notoriety for his involvement in the Second Vatican Council, um, which we've talked briefly about on this podcast, um, but it was a hugely influential event in the life of the global Catholic Church. Um, and he was named a, an expert at the council where his his books were widely read by its participants. So in short, influential theologian at a hugely influential council. Yeah. And for most theologians participating in the Second Vatican Council would probably be, you know, the high point of your career. But Kung uh, went on to do even more interesting things after the council. Um, he he kind of, you know, looked outward beyond the Catholic Church. Um, and that sometimes got himself into trouble uh, with going against church teaching on things like papal infallibility, birth control, celibacy for priests. Uh, near the end of his life, he 
came out um, in favor of euthanasia in some instances. Uh, so he was not uncontroversial, and he was uh, eventually censored by Pope John Paul II. Yeah, in 1979, the Vatican ended up declaring that uh, Hans Kung had, quote, departed from the integral truth of the Catholic faith and therefore can no longer be considered a Catholic theologian nor function as such in a teaching role. Now, what practically that meant was that he ended up switching departments at the same university where he continued to teach and write for many years. Um, but in the end, Kuhn wanted to remain part of the Catholic Church. Um, he and Pope Benedict, who had diverged on a number of topics, um, ended up meeting while Benedict was Pope and had a pretty cordial meeting um, and developed a mutual respect for one another. Um, and, you know, as more and more stories came out this week um, after his death, I, I was particularly struck by, by one where um, Cardinal Walter Casper told the story that last summer he had called Pope Francis and and told him that Kung was close to death, but he that he, quote, wanted to die at peace with the church. And so Pope Francis sent his greeting and his blessing. And so, you know, while a lot of the theological differences that Kung and the church had were never really, I mean, I don't know, fixed, right? They were never, never ended up agreeing in a strict sense of the word. Um, his Catholic identity sort of remained intact throughout his life. Well, and that's kind of like an amazing lesson for today. Like, it's hard to think of Catholics more divergent than Kung and Pope Benedict, and yet Benedict didn't see that as a reason to not have a cordial meeting with him and talk things out at the end of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think there's something about Kung's life and witness is has something to say to a lot of young people who I think sometimes feel or are told that if they don't have the correct theological opinion that is in line with the church, that they should somehow stop being part of this church. And um, here is this, you know, towering figure who kind of, you know, got his hands dirty and fought with the church his entire life and nevertheless died a Catholic. What's our next story, Ashley? So as everyone knows, it's Easter, um, but we wanted to take you back to last weekend at the Vatican, where there were some pretty uh, surprising and moving moments uh, as Pope Francis uh, led the church through the Triduum, um, beginning on Holy Thursday. Uh, listeners to the show have probably heard about past Holy Thursdays when Pope Francis did the feet washing ritual with um, people at the margins of the church. So he would you know, prisoners, uh, there's refugees, Muslims, women, um, people who you don't traditionally see up up near the altar during your Holy Thursday uh, ritual. Uh, but he he broke tradition this year, thanks to COVID. Yeah. And so there weren't, uh, there wasn't any feet washing this year because of that. Um, but the Pope managed to still make headlines by celebrating uh, the Mass of commemorating the Last Supper in the private chapel of Cardinal Angelo Becciu. And you might remember Becciu um, if you were a listener to Inside the Vatican um, or the show, because he's he was one of the most powerful officials at the Vatican until a very sudden and quick fall from grace uh, last year related to his involvement in a London real estate scandal. So we're not going to break that all down here right now because it's a very complicated story. But if you are interested, you can hop over to Inside the Vatican and our colleagues, Colleen Dully and Jerry O'Connell will explain it all for you. So that's Thursday. Moving into Good Friday, Pope Francis presided over the Liturgy of the Lord's Passion at the Vatican. Um, but I didn't actually realize this. It's custom that the the Pope doesn't actually do the preaching on Good Friday. Um, that role is left to the preacher of the papal household, who is Cardinal Rainiero Cantalamesa, who gave a pretty fiery homily. 
Yes, he did. In it, he warned of the divisions in the church that have torn Christ's tunic to shreds. Um, And he clarified that these divisions aren't mostly over dogma or the sacraments, um, which are protected by God's grace. And so even our human sinfulness cannot uh, (laughs) destroy those. But they are due to politics that are getting imported into the church. Yeah, I thought that was particularly striking because of COVID restrictions, you know, a large part of the audience is just people who are at the Vatican and doing a lot of church politics. So this felt pretty much like a pointed message, Mm -hmm. um, which is uh, very much like a knock it off, guys. Definitely guys, knock it off. Um, (laughs) He called on Catholic bishops and priests to examine their own conscience and determine whether or not they're actually leading their flocks to arrive at their own political positions or to the person of Jesus. Not mincing words. And he's, you no. know, this guy has been there since uh, 1980, I learned this week. Um, so he's so, seen a lot. Yeah, he's seen a lot. And if he's concerned about the state of divisions right now, I think I think the Pope and the Cardinals uh, are, are listening. Hey, I hope so. Um, so later on, on Good Friday, um, Pope Francis presided over the Stations of the Cross um, in a pretty iconic near-empty St. Peter's Square um, what was striking for me was the Pope had invited uh, children and other young people to write the meditations for the procession. Um, also, there were there were drawings involved, so like kids' drawings. Yes, it was very cute. You know, and you know, <laughs> meditating over the Passion is an inevitably sad thing, but it, it was so beautiful to see um, children and young people get involved in this way. Um, and you know, just a reminder that they are part of the church and their experiences are valid, even though. Um, they're learning like all of us. Yeah, and in true Francis fashion, they, they, some of the kids ended up rushing the days and giving Pope Francis a hug, and it was very cute. Yeah, and on Easter, Pope Francis gave his, uh, as is his custom, his Urbi at Orbi address. This happens on Easter and, and Christmas. This is a speech to to the city and the world, um, where the Pope talked about a number of things, but main points were. Uh, the scandal that armed conflicts continue to to rage, even though there's a pandemic happening, you know, we've taken breaks from basically everything except war in the world. Um, and also, uh, particularly, he had some things to say about vaccines. Right. He said, in the spirit of global responsibility, all nations should commit to overcoming delays in the distribution of vaccines and to facilitate their distribution, especially in the poorest countries. So I know that you know, Zach and I were excited to have ours, but Pope Francis is, you know, reminding us that uh, we're very lucky in the United States. And as such, we have a responsibility to to advocate for them being um, donated to other parts of the world. Right. Because if, if all of us aren't safe, then none of us are safe. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Pope Francis, for that reminder. Uh, What's our last story, Ashley? Okay, so this is this is a fun one, and we're we're a couple of weeks late to it, but it was it was too good not to bring back. Um, so there's a ferry in New York City, the Staten Island ferry that goes between Manhattan and Staten Island, and uh, the mayor of New York announced that one of those ferries will be named for Dorothy Day, who you know she's been frequently canonized on this show, um, and she famously quipped, "Don't call me a saint." So funny that she will now maybe no won't be a saint but will be a fairy right yeah don't call me a saint fairy okay um yeah and this is really fitting for dorothy day because you know she you know founded the catholic worker in manhattan but 
also loved Staten Island, spent a lot of time there. And, and so that her, a ferry sort of shuttling people back and forth would bear her name. Um, it, it was really exciting to see as, as a Catholic and a New Yorker. And I think she would approve because the Staten Island ferry is free. So it excludes no one. Amen. If you're ever in New York and someone tries to sell you a ticket to the Staten Island ferry, um, ask if they've got a bridge <laughs> in Brooklyn to sell you to because they probably do. And now stick around for our conversation with Stina Kielsmeyer-Cook. Joining us from Minneapolis is Stina Kielsmeyer-Cook. Stina is the Director of Communications at the Collegeville Institute and the author of the book, Blessed Are the Nuns. Mixed Faith Marriages, and My Search for a Spiritual Community. Welcome to Jesuitical, Stina. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a it's a really wonderful book. Um, there, there are a lot of books out there about, about the nuns dissecting their religious beliefs and trying to figure out how to get them back into the church. Um, but this one was different. This is it's a very personal story about your own marriage um, and, and how... You know, you started out on the same page religiously with your husband and then kind of went in different directions. Um, so I'm wondering if you could, could you start with, you know, your your background, what, what you were going into this marriage believing and how that shaped your your early years with your, with your husband, Josh? Sure. Yeah. So my husband and I um, both were raised Protestant and my husband grew up in the independent Southern Baptist Church and was a missionary kid. His parents were missionaries in South America. And I grew up kind of more in the mainline Protestant church. My mom is a Presbyterian minister. And we both ended up at the same kind of evangelical college. And so so in layman's terms, you 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 guys were both church kids. Oh yeah, totally. Okay. All right. Yeah. MK and PK. So yeah, which is missionary kid, pastor's kid in God. I was going to ask. Like, Wait a okay. yeah, Catholics. Are Catholics like, don't have like, that much. As much. There's no priest so. kids. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, yeah. So we were very churched, um, and when we met in college, the school that we went to um, had a bell tower on campus where, when anyone got engaged, you would go to the top of the tower and ring the bell. That's how often people got engaged while we were in college. So marriage was oh, definitely. Wow. Um, something that a lot of people were hoping would happen as a result of their four years, that they would meet their godly spouse. And, um, you know, the foundation of a Christian marriage was really taught as something that needed to be, you know, centered on God, centered on scripture. And so that was really my assumption going into my relationship was that my husband and I both shared the same faith. We both wanted to serve God. Um, so that was going to be the core of, of how we were going to relate to one another and to the world around us. So having him move away from Christianity and leave the church really shook me to my core because I honestly didn't know if you could have a successful, uh, loving, healthy relationship without the foundation of a common religious beliefs. Can, can you pause on uh, on that moment maybe real quick? When, uh, about sure. how long into your marriage does, does this happen for Josh? And, and what are some of your like initial reactions when, 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 it, when he tells you? Sure. Uh, yeah, it was about three years after we got married. So we had both been kind of asking bigger questions after graduation and reexamining some of the, you know, truths that we'd been told were, you know, absolutely fundamental to our faith. So we were both kind of in a place of spiritual exploration. 
but I was still kind of holding on by my fingernails. You know, I was like, this is still the community that I'm committed to. You know, the gospel is at the core of how I want my life to be, um, you know, what I want my life to be about. And so when Josh kind of let go while I was still holding on, I, it, it, it totally shook me. Like I said before it, I was reeling because I didn't know what this meant. Um, so, yeah, so we had been having conversations for a while about the things that we weren't sure about. And so the biggest change at that point was that, you know, he stopped going to church. So I started going to church alone. And at that point I had like a, we, our daughter was almost two years old and, um, it just was this very lonely experience of, of doing a spiritual practice that we'd once shared together by myself. Mm. So it, it was a time of loss and of mourning and of sadness and confusion. And it was, it was a really dark time in our relationship. And so um, I don't want to minimize yeah, that experience because I think for a lot of people, it's, it's when the life that you expected that you would have um, goes in a different direction, it, there's a lot of just sadness that you have to process. But thankfully, you know, that's not the end of the story. Right. So you you try to rebuild not only um, what what marriage looks like for you, but what your own spiritual life will look like. Um, so like in the beginning, what, what were like the practical steps you took to try to, to rebuild from there? Well, we both knew we needed to like go talk to a counselor, you know, like how do you reimagine your relationship now that this core thing is no longer there? Is there something else that can replace that? Is there a healthy way for us to both live out our spiritual lives separately? And then what are the things that we can come together on? So for me, you know, it just, it, it took a long time of, of kind of processing together, being in counseling, um, talking to friends and other people in our lives who we respected. And, you know, it's, it's something that I feel like is still kind of in process. I wouldn't say that we're at the end. We haven't arrived in any kind of like final way um, to a certain destination that's like the answer for this kind of thing. But I think things have gotten easier as we've been more forthright about, yeah, you know, Josh isn't a Christian and I am. And this is, and, and I think because we had both been Christians together and that was our whole community, it just took, a, took time to kind of explain to our friends and family that this was now different and how they should then interact with us and expectations around things like, you know, church services, holidays, that kind of thing. So he wasn't a Christian anymore. How did, how did he describe his, his faith or lack thereof? Um, I think he would say he's agnostic. Agnostic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what was the initial reaction from some of the faith communities that you um, were currently living in or that you had had before? At the time of Josh's deconversion, we were um, attending a really small Mennonite church, which is kind of part of the Anabaptist school of uh, Protestant churches. So very small, very um, service oriented. And so it was very clear, like when there's only 50, 60 people in a congregation, mm -hmm. if someone's missing and I'm there by myself, um, people are going to start asking questions. But people were really warm and generous you know, as soon as I was honest about, yeah, I don't, I don't think Josh is going to keep coming. Like his faith has shifted. He, he's no longer a Christian. Um, it wasn't long before I had a couple other people come up to me, you know, during that church fellowship hour and say, yeah, you know, that's my story too. Or, you know, I have, you know, my spouse doesn't come or my son or daughter walked away from the church. And I think the more that you're open and honest about, you know, what your relationship looks like, if, if this has happened in your marriage, 
the more you'll attract people who have similar stories because really this is happening um, more and more um, to people in marriages or in family systems where there are people who believe and those who don't. Yeah. And it's not even just, you know, changing religious beliefs, you know, in any marriage, if it lasts long enough, people are going to change. So being able to think about how to change together and um, navigate that seems like it, it, it's yeah more applicable than just to interfaith marriages. Um, Absolutely. So I'm wondering what, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like, how, how do you think about doing that in a healthy way that, what's the term you use? differentiated or oh yeah um mm-hmm. self dif- differentiation yeah. yeah no that's a really great question and i think yeah applies to everyone right that you know i think i've heard someone say you know i've had 10 different marriages in the course of my you know 30 years of being married to someone that every season is going to bring up something new some new dynamic you know and we have to learn how to shift and change together and sometimes you're going to be in lockstep with one another and sometimes you won't and it's even true of people who are, you know, deeply committed to the same faith. So I have a friend who was also in an interfaith relationship and the way she described it to me was, you know, I really had to learn to take my hands off my husband. Like I couldn't like hold him so close to this ideal or this um, kind of idealization, um, imaginary kind of thing that I thought he should be. I had to learn to take my hands off of him and let him be who he is and love him without any kind of religious condition put on him. And I thought that was such a helpful way for me to think about it because that was really what um, kind of mourning this loss looked like for me was learning to kind of let go of what this ideal had been and realize that 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 wasn't the only way to to have a relationship that was healthy and vibrant. Um, So I guess that would be the first place to start. It's a lot of Prayers of relinquishment is kind of the way I mm-hmm. I kind of came to think of it. Was as opposed to praying for him to come back to the church. I imagine there was at least some of that. Yeah, I, I was like really moved by at the beginning of the book. You you write that you don't want a self help guide on how to pray your husband back to the faith right. um, because that is almost like an exercise and I don't know making yourself feel bad a little bit. But um, how did you? Was there at least initially a temptation to want to do that? Absolutely. You know, that would be the easiest fix, right? It's like, oh, you changed in a way I didn't want you to change. Like, I want you to come back to me, right? I want well, it's you also to come the back. only fix that often the mm. church like has for people in your situation, right? Sure. Right. So it gets complicated, right? Um, because as someone who's still a professing Christian, like I still want anyone that I know to know the truth of the gospel and to have, you know, the Holy Spirit active in their lives. And yet I know in my husband's case, he he knows the story. Like he knows all of this information about Christianity. I'm not going to be able to convince him in any kind of real way because he was steeped in it his whole life. And so I think love can look differently in this case where it's just supporting him and saying, I care about you as you are, and I can trust God with you. I think that that was one of the big movements in the story for me was going moving from a place of fear of being afraid for him and what it meant for us as a couple to a place of, you know, I just need to be faithful um, to the vows that I've made to love this person who God has placed in my life and just to trust that God can be big enough for anything, right? And if I keep acting out of fear, it's going to destroy this. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I was thinking about... um I got married a little over a year and a half ago. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and there's some, 
I, I would not, we're, we're, I'm not in the same situation as you, but, uh, my, my wife and I met in a youth group. Um, and I think, but we didn't start dating until much later. And I think she's described it as I was the first person that was quote, more Catholic than she was that she had dated, <laughs> um, because I just like work, um, in the church for the church. And mm-hmm. so I think us dating has given her some space to re-examine and question some things and, uh, but it's really scary at first and it's really hard to let go of that, I think. And so I have a lot of admiration for you. But when I was reading the book, I was thinking like the vows that you make are really to the other person. They're not necessarily contingent upon that person, you know, having the same confession as you. Yeah. It, it, it's something that, you know, the editor that I worked with at the press, you know, talked about when we were talking about how do I talk about marriage and marriage vows in the story and, he said, well, it's it's one of those things that can be considered a common grace. Like you don't have to believe in God to experience the grace of uh, a marriage, of married life, you know? And I thought that that was a beautiful way of thinking about it, that, you know, God can still work in and through ways and means that are not explicitly religious, but it doesn't mean that God still isn't at work. And I think that's part of what it looks like to trust, even if, you know, outwardly you're someone you love isn't you know, participating in the religious life that you thought they would, um, that God's grace can still reach them. At least that's something that I'm I'm leaning into and, and hoping. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine one of the more difficult parts, not, you know, just practically, you already mentioned having to, you know, lug your two kids to church by yourself. Um, but the the conversations about how what what you're going to pass on to to your children is one of the, you know, stickier parts of of navigating this kind of relationship. Um, so how, how did that happen in your own family? Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely the most challenging part for us is figuring out how to talk to our kids about faith. Um, I think, you know, I don't think our relationship would have worked if my husband, Josh hadn't been supportive of me. Um, well, just supporting me that I wanted to continue being a Christian. You know, if he had suddenly turned cynical or derisive about, you know, the things that I believed, that would have been a real problem. Um, but we were able to kind of come to a place of mutual respect of, you know, taking, we're both taking our hands off each other, right? When it comes to what we believe. Um, and then when it comes to kids, he's always been supportive of me um, bringing them to church and reading Bible stories to them. And it's also something that I am very respectful of him around where I, I'm, I check in with him. Like, for example, this last week, during Easter, we had like a faith formation at home kind of thing that we did with our kids, like in and through what our church had sent home. And I was like, Josh, you know, if you want to go for a run, I'm going to do the, you know, I'm going to talk about the Easter story with them. If you, cause I know for him, it can be kind of triggering still, like some of the, his religious baggage is stuff that he mm-hmm. hasn't really fully worked through. And so I try to be really sensitive um, to that and not like force, force it on him in our family space. Um, so, you know, I think it takes both of us trying to meet each other in the middle. So having seen, you know, you, you mentioned his religious baggage and how how his faith journey has gone and yours has, has that shaped like the kind of Christianity you're trying to pass on to your kids? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think our kids, just by the nature of having a Christian mom and a agnostic dad, are definitely going to have a different look at Christianity than I did, for example, growing up. How, how conscious are the kids of that? 
distinction. Oh, very conscious. Yeah. I mean, they know I wrote a book about it. So, okay. you know, um, <laughs> they're still pretty young in elementary school, but they're, they're aware. And we actually have formed a small group at our church um, with Christian agnostic couples and families. Um, so that also helps, I think, them to realize like they're not the only family that looks like them at, at church. Like there's other other kids that they know who are growing up in Christian agnostic families. So that that also makes a big difference. Um, but again, it's trying to center in a place of trust, of uh, living each day um, as best I can as it relates to their faith formation. And then at some point, you just have to take your hands off of your kids too and say, God, like these are your created beautiful children. Um, they're not mine and I'm doing what I can, but really it's the movement of the spirit that, that draws people to God. So, um, I think that any parent has that kind of worry at the back of their mind, you know, is my kid going to be a faithful follower of Jesus when they grow up? And none of us has control over that. So I think the only thing we can do is, is to, to really rest in that trust and to respond as best we can in the moments that we have with our kids around telling them the stories and bringing them to church to be part of the the community. I'm curious how you think about your mixed faith marriage in relationship to maybe a couple that has two people sort of practicing, actively practicing two different faiths. Um, because you, you, you've described Josh's movement as a deconversion or a, lo- a loss of faith. Um, are, are there any things that are like unique or similar to maybe a different kind of mixed faith marriage? Yeah, no, th- it, this is very different, I think, than when someone, you know, is consciously dating someone of a different faith and you're entering into the relationship with that knowledge, right? Because then you bring those questions into your dating life, right? And then mm-hmm. if you decide to get married, hopefully you've got really good premarital counseling that can kind of walk you through things like, okay, if you do have kids, what would that look like? Um, So I do know in the interfaith family world, there's a lot of like literature and books around Christian Jewish relationships. Um, You know, how do you celebrate Easter and Passover or Hanukkah and Christmas? So there it's different because, um, you know, if you have two people of different faiths, you're bringing two different traditions together. Whereas in Josh's case, he grew up Christian, um, but doesn't have like a whole set of formed rituals or a holy book or, you know, um, holidays to bring to integrate with my Christianity. You know, the kids aren't getting a different faith exposure. Um, and so sometimes that's that's challenging because I feel like in some ways we're bushwhacking a little bit. Like, you know, I, I want him to feel like he can introduce things to the kids that he cares about. Like I'm bringing them to church and he's a scientist and loves being outside. So going on hikes together or, or introducing things that, you know, are, are part of his spirituality, even if they're not explicitly in one tradition. So it is really different. Um, and I think that more and more as, as more people enter into, you know, agnostic or none NONES relationships, um, I think there needs to be more support for people who don't have like a set of rituals to fall back on. Cause it really is when you think about it, when you join a religion and you have all these things set out for you, you've got the liturgies, you've got, you know, this is how you do these holidays and you can really just find your place in a community. And if you're outside of that, there's a lot of like reinventing that needs to happen. And sometimes that can be hard. You need like a subscription box. 
yeah, to, <laughs> to give you rituals instead yeah. of uh, ready to make meals. Right. Now, there's a, a large part of the book is not just, you know, you finding a space for y- you and your family, but also your own sort of personal spiritual journey. And you do a fair amount of, I, I, not church shopping, but you're at least spiritual shopping, right? And you mm-hmm. end up stumbling across um, some Catholics throughout the process. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you just describe how that came to be? Yeah. One of my friends calls it being Catholic attracted. <laughs> There's like a whole group of us Protestants <laughs> who are just like kind of jealous of the traditions and the, you know, the communion of saints and just these different ways and expressions of faith that, you know, growing up Presbyterian, just, we just didn't have access to. So now management, I, I, management did <laughs> like tell me that I have to make the formal pitch to you if you say something oh, like okay. that. So just so you, so you know, just that's on the table. Okay. Great. Well, let's have that conversation. Um, yeah. So I was mentioning earlier, you know, when my husband and I were early in our marriage, we were both kind of struggling with doubts and things like that. And he sort of let go while I held on. So I, you know, the story that I write about in the memoir is really centered on my spiritual shift that happened after my husband's deconversion, because suddenly, you know, those truths about marriage were suddenly up for, up for grabs or I was questioning things. And I found that, um, you know, exploring different veins of Christianity has been one way to help me sort of reimagine my faith or reinvigorate my faith because it gives me a different lens to look at the same stories that I've heard my whole life. So in terms of the Catholic spirituality, we moved to a new neighborhood a couple of years ago and we were out trick-or-treating with our kids and we walked into this house and I looked around, there was religious art on the walls and copies of Give Us a Stay, um, the kind of daily readings on, on the side table. And there was this group of just elderly women, you know, just soft white hair, handing out candy to my kids and just exclaiming over their costumes. And I was like, oh my gosh, like th- this isn't just like a normal house. This is a monastery. And Sister Karen, you know, invited me to come back from for mass. It was a, a community of visitation sisters um, just about half a mile away from where I lived. And I, at that point, I had been trying to meet with a spiritual director who was a Benedictine nun, um, but her monastic community was over an hour's drive away. And so when I realized that there was this community of sisters in my neighborhood, um, I just felt like it was God kind of winking at me saying, okay, you know, I, I had given you some inklings around, you know, being interested in Catholic spirituality here. Here's a community that's just kind of just a little ways away for you to kind of get to know. And so after meeting those sisters, um, I started going to Mass on Wednesday mornings at the monastery, and they invited me to be part of um, something called the Visitation Companions Community, which is a lay community that supports the sisters in their ministry. And before you can officially join, though, you have to go through a year-long kind of formation program. So once a month, I go to the monastery and sit in the basement with, you know, styrofoam cup of coffee and with other women and learn about the Salesian order and the Salesian spirituality. And I just found um, St. Francis de Sales and St. Jane de Chantal, their kind of emphasis on the holiness of ordinary life and the little virtues and just, I don't know, I just found a real attraction to that spirituality. So it was really easy for me to then at the end of that formation year say, yes, I do want to become a visitation companion. Mm found myself getting a little envious when I was reading the book. I, I spend a lot of time with 
a Jesuit priest, but there are no nuns in my in my life. <laughs> you should be jealous. They're amazing. Yeah. Ashley, management has also advised me to tell you that there are ways to spend time with lots of nuns uh, conveniently available to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but no, so I like you are clearly someone who is open to a lot of different spiritualities um, uh, that my parochial self uh, has not has not explored. Um, so I'm wondering what what do you see the benefit of in kind of um, trying out a bunch of different communities and and denominations even in in your spiritual life and I don't know how do you balance uh, checking things out and and going deep and laying roots somewhere? Yeah, this is a question that I've definitely struggled with because in some ways I feel kind of flighty, right? Like I've been um, part of several different Protestant churches and, you know, I'm still a member at a Protestant church and that's where I go on Sunday mornings with my kids um, and now have this affiliation with the Visitation Sisters. I guess for me, I I think when, so I, I work for an ecumenical organization, so that also has introduced a lot of different strains of Christianity into my life that, you know, I wasn't necessarily out looking for, but in and through my work meeting different writers and artists and scholars who come to this ecumenical center, um, you know, you just get exposed to different ways of viewing Christianity. And I remember learning more about Benedictines in particular and realizing, hey, this monastic tradition predates the major schisms in the church, you know, predates obviously the Protestant Reformation, but even the Orthodox splits. And so this is actually part of my heritage as well, even though my ancestors <laughs> decided to go on the other on the other side of the Protestant Catholic divide. And so I think that kind of gave me some more permission, I guess, to to explore um, and not feel like I was appropriating someone else's tradition, but realizing, you know, God has been active through all these different expressions of faith. And it's still, you know, the same big tent Christianity, right? Um, and I think, like I said earlier, when you're really struggling with doubt or struggling with, you know, maybe how your faith community has disillusioned you, sometimes it's helpful to kind of look through a different lens for a while and say, well, how do the Catholics view this particular issue, you know, and do I resonate with that or not? And I think for me, the Catholic sisters having, you know, there isn't like an equivalency of monasticism, right, in Protestant world. So, seeing this community of women who dedicated their lives to not only prayer, but being um, a presence in our neighborhood and serving people who come to their door and treating them as Jesus. It's just so inspiring. And so sometimes when you're still, you know, struggling with doubt, you see this lived example of someone who's being faithful and you think, yeah, I'm in, I still want to do this. Mm -hmm. This, this is where God is present. Yeah. And it was really helpful for me to have your lens on Catholicism because you say at some point that like, I don't know that that the Catholic Church has like versions or, or models of spiritual singleness in in our sisters and our women saints that that you didn't have in a Protestant church and like I honestly had never thought of the Catholic Church as being a place that's like <laughs> a great place to be single because and mm. you know in my experience because I'm just like swimming in it it's like okay you have you have the sacraments when you're you have baptism and Eucharist or com- and communion and confirmation, and then basically you're kind of on your own until you get married, mm. um, unless you're becoming a, a nun. Um, so yeah, so just like having having you point that out and being like, oh yeah, I do have these things in my own tradition to look to um, in this in between time <laughs> was helpful. Yeah, well, it's it's funny that you say that because 
you know, initially that was the phrase that attracted me to monasticism or to the sisters Mm -hmm. was this idea of spiritual singleness. I was like, oh, that's what I am. You know, I'm married, but I'm spiritually single. And I thought maybe the sisters would be able to teach me about something like that. You know, like, could we relate? Were we like sisters together? Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I was just trying to figure out, I was just desperate to grasp onto any community that would get kind of validate um, the state that I was in, because when I attended my Protestant church, I just felt, yeah, very much like on the sidelines. And I think a lot of singles feel that way too. Um, and it's funny when I finally talked to the sisters about that phrase later in the year, they, they hated it. They were like, no, we're not spiritually single. Like that is not the way Christian faith is lived out. We don't identify with that at all. And I thought, oh, okay. So that was my initial attraction, but really, it, it just hit home that none of us can do faith by ourselves. You know, um, we all need each other. We need community. Um, so, yeah, I can imagine that being single in any church, whether or not you have that tradition of, you know, Catholic sisters or not, is still going to be challenging because we need people to connect with. I'm wondering if you have any uh, advice for listeners of the show who might be dating and in looking for, you know, the one and all of a sudden, like maybe are, are, are terrified at hearing your story, thinking that they maybe <laughs> just found like a nice, the nice Catholic girl or the nice Catholic boy thinking that it's all set for life. And you've mm-hmm. reminded them that it can all go sideways in a way you don't expect at any time. Mm-hmm. What advice might you have for that person? Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly good, good counseling is something that I, I recommend to anyone like at any stage of life, but especially if you're in a dating relationship and seriously considering marriage and and maybe even having that conversation with your, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend and, you know, what would happen if you no longer believed or if I, if this shift happened, because we can't anticipate, you know, how people are going to change. Um, is that a deal breaker? And, you know, to be, to be clear, I know couples who have gone through shifts like this, who you know, the best option for them was to walk away. It was to, you know, make a break because they could no longer find a way to continue being unified. They didn't have enough in common. They weren't able to respect each other and continue to, you know, grow their love beyond these religious conditions. And that was the best outcome for them. So I don't want to say that, you know, that divorce can't be something that people might choose and that might be a healthy thing in this case. Um, But I think if you're dating just just introduce it as a topic of conversation. Like, how important is your faith to you? Is this a deal breaker? Um, how do you want to raise your kids? If, if that's something that you think you might, you know, if you think you might want to have kids in the future. And, you know, a good premarital counselor, I think, will hopefully be able to guide you in those conversations. Um, and it's pretty revealing, right? If you, if you have, if you ask that honestly, see what your boyfriend or girlfriend has to say and, you know, really seek wise spiritual counsel. I think that you definitely can have a beautiful relationship, a beautiful, supportive marriage, um, even if you don't believe the same things. But it's not for everyone, right? So um, I would say definitely seek wisdom and and take your time. Yeah. Well, so in your book, you write about several uh, Catholic women saints, uh, St. Jane Francis de Chantal, St. Elizabeth, St. Monica. Um, And on this show, we give all of our guests the opportunity to canonize um, someone. So if this is our last question for all our guests, if you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? 
Uh, I, I was thinking about this question because I've been listening to some of your other episodes. And so I got introduced to Catholic Saints by the this book, Give Us This Day, where Robert Ellsberg's like, you know, Blessed Among Us section has like a different profile of different saint each day. And I love that he includes people who are beyond the realms of the Catholic world, including Protestants. And I actually bought one of his books that... Um, it's called Blessed Among All Women. That's specifically about women saints. And he has this little paragraph where he talks about just the ordinary lay women in the church. And he quotes um, George Eliot from the novel Middlemarch and saying that, you know, if I could canonize anyone, I would canonize these ordinary women. And, and he quotes that, you know, most ordinary women who are just faithful in their day to day lives, they're acting for the growing good of the world. Um, and Really, most of us, the, the reason thing th- that things are not um, so ill with you or me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a faithfully hidden life. So if I can kind of subvert the genre a little bit, I would say people who live a faithful hidden life would be the, the, the general laywoman would be who I'd want to canonize. That is really beautiful. And there is like some a, a tradition of doing some type of like unknown groups like this. I feel like sometimes when there's like groups of martyrs, there's they are mm. kind of canonized collectively. But I I just love that like the faithfully hidden like laywoman doing the day to day because I I've known countless of them in my own life, so it's fairly easy to see. Right? Yeah. You think about to any any church you've been to, any like school community, you just think about the mm-hmm. people who just keep showing up, and I don't know. I just think that it's encouraging for the rest of us who aren't always so saintly otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for reminding the rest of us about them. Uh, And and thank you for this book. It's so beautiful. And I think it's going to be, this conversation in this book is going to be like such a help to a lot of our listeners. It's such a common topic. Whenever we ask our our people listen to the show, you know, what do we, what do we want to talk about on the show? You know, mixed Mm -hmm. marriages comes up all the time. Interfaith marriages comes up all the time. So thank you for being so vulnerable and honest. Um, and thank you to your husband too, um, for, for his story and his journey that comes through in this book. Um, it's, it's really, really beautiful. The, the title is blessed are the nuns mixed faith marriage and my search for spiritual community. Um, Sina, thanks so much. And, uh, where can people find your work or get the book? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, you can find me at stinakc.com and you'll find links to social media if you want to be in touch. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for this conversation. It was a really fun way to spend an afternoon. Awesome. Thanks, Tina. And now we have some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So I do want to take a moment to congratulate uh, the winners of our Patreon community's uh, NCAA Men's Tournament Bracket Challenge, um, but also with a slight admonishment because um, the people who got first, second, third, and fourth all did so because they chose Baylor over the Jesuit school, Gonzaga. And so I do want to, you know, just... Ask, you know, Ray Walton, Nick Frega, um, 
one day BC will be back is the name of third place. Uh, what's going on there? Uh, I thought we were all on the same page on uh, this Jesuitical podcast. We were all going to pick Gonzaga. Um, but no, congratulations to our, our winners and to the Baylor Bears on their, on their win. Yes. And if you want to take part in next year's March Madness Bracket Challenge, you can join the Patreon community at patreon.com slash Media. And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I've got a consolation this week, and it really comes from I was able to go to uh, my parish's Easter Vigil this year, and I haven't been to Mass a lot this past year. And so I was really looking forward to, I'm always looking forward to an Easter Vigil liturgy, but this one more so than normal. And I was just absolutely like delighted to see new Catholics come into the church. Um, I wasn't just happy for them. Like there's a big smile on my face, obviously, but I feel like so much of this year has been about sort of like being alone and sort of just like treading water spiritually, make trying to hang in there um, and seeing other people like coming into the church, receiving sacraments, um, both like, brought me out of myself and reminded myself like, Oh, you, you aren't doing this alone. There's the church that still exists. And also like, see, like seeing the physical, you know, pouring of water, re- receiving of communion, anointing with oil. Like, I, I don't know. That was just such a balm to my soul right now. Um, and so that was a huge consolation, uh, for Easter for me. Yeah. That's wonderful. We had very different Easter experiences, which is kind of what my consolation was about. So, um, I was with my, with my parents, uh, in our, in our family. Uh, and last year we, we were at, at my parents' house and did, you know, this is the beginning of the pandemic. And we took the big breakfast table and basically turned it into a mini church. We had candles, we had flowers, we put out a tablecloth. We like stood and stand and kneeled and everything for the zoom mass. Um, and there was none of that this year. I like I stumbled downstairs at like 9 a.m. and was like, oh, my what what time is it? And my parents were already just like had the laptop set up like on the kitchen counter and were watching the local uh parishes Easter Mass. Um and like everyone was running around. Jackie was chasing Ellis, my grandpa was making breakfast, and they were just watching the mass. And so I like sat with them and it ended up just being like the best zoo mass I've ever attended because we weren't trying to make it something that it wasn't. And it was just like, so clear to me that God was still there in that moment when we were just all together in that, my house as a family. Um, and, and I don't know, it just seemed like a perfect metaphor for like realizing like, yeah, things have been weird and not how we would expect or maybe want them to be. Um, but God's still there if you can just like take a moment to recognize it. So it was really wonderful. And, you know, not, not, not all the pomp and circumstance of an actual Easter vigil mass, but um, really felt God's presence there in a strong way, nonetheless. Well, you know, year in, um, <laughs> at least we're learning a couple things. <laughs> yep. One is to, you know, expect less from Zoom liturgies and maybe you'll get more. Mm -hmm. Expect less, get more. That's (laughs) good standard for life, I suppose. Yep. (laughs) All right. Take us out of here. This episode of Jesuitical was produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.